How are we doing? Welcome, guys. Welcome, guys. It's weird. We have no adults today. It's like the kids running the house today. Uh, my name is David Otuo, Pastor Otuo. Uh, I have a very important announcement, an update, really. Uh, last time I was here, I talked about all the nicknames I was getting, uh, and I mentioned how my least favorite was Patois. And so naturally, over the last month, that's all anyone has been calling me. And so I've decided to embrace it, but I have to, we have to get kind of on the same page here about the spelling, because I've seen some atrocious spelling. And so I prayed about it, and this is the official way I think my name should be, I don't know if you can see it's really small, but it's an apostrophe and a til, tilde, tilde, I don't know what it's called, over the A. So that's patois. Want the same page? All right, awkward opening, done. Um, our passage, our, sorry, our topic is on the idea of Can I really change? Can I really change? And not to be honest with you guys, I don't preach here that often, so I feel a little bit at liberty at times, which I shouldn't probably, uh, to be honest, though, and to just be kind of frankly. And I was wrestling with this idea, this series of can we really change, and it was bothering me because I don't know about you guys. When I look at my faith walk over the last five years or so, I don't know how much I've changed. I heard one person say that, you know, when people look at you, especially if you're in ministry or you're a pastor, they should always see the gospel transforming and working in your life. And I don't know if with confidence I could say that you guys see that. And I don't know what you would say about yourself. And so I've been wrestling with this idea of what does it mean actually to change? What is our hope in Christ? And I was talking to somebody, a friend, um, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking to me uh, about this idea of change in his coworkers or his friends or family who aren't Christian. And he was basically asking this question, how is it that we change people's hearts who might be closed off to God to believing in God? And he was asking me, he's like, you know, do you, do you know, like, strategies or tricks or ways to, like, present the gospel in a way that's captivating and convincing? You know what I told him? Nope. Like, for real. I think part of it is because actually I realized something. God more and more has been showing me something now that I'm in ministry. And that's that change actually doesn't often happen through words alone. And it's been very humbling for me. Honestly, I'm a preacher. And so I come up here and I preach. And it's been humbling for me to realize that I could be the most articulate. You know, I went, I went to Wheaton College, right? You know, the Harvard of Christian schools. You know what I'm saying? Like, I know the rhetoric, and I could, I could deliver it in a beautiful way, and it not actually produce change in people's lives. It's been very humbling. I, I've actually shared the gospel with a friend who isn't a believer, and when I was done, he, he literally was like, dude, that was beautiful. And I think what you said is actually true. You know what he said, though? He said, but I kind of want to have fun right now. Like, I don't really want to change. That's, it's so humbling for me to hear that. Because it helps me realize that so many of us, we put pressure on ourselves or we put pressure on the preachers to change the people around us or to change our own lives. We're not changing. A lot of us, we're not changing, right? We're kind of 
where we have always been for the last five years in our faith or so. And what God, I think, has been revealing to me or has been slowly showing me that the only way we can change is when we encounter God. That is the only way. When we actually see him, when we actually speak to him, when we hear him speak to us, that is, I'm telling you, the only way we can change. If we have a real, tangible encounter with God, or when the people in your life, they look at your life, and they see God in your life, that will inspire them to be, okay, now preach this gospel that you want to preach to me, because what is it about your life that is so different from this world? And so for me, what, what I had to understand is that so many of us, we haven't had many times we can say this week, this month, this year, yeah, I heard from God. Yeah, I saw God. Like I actually encountered God. Like I don't have a doubt that God, whether it's through a sermon or through a book or through a circumstance, spoke to me. I'm, I'm sure it was him. If you're like me, you don't have many of those moments. And so what happens, I apologize, this is a really long intro, so don't take notes yet. Um, but what I, what I had to kind of set up before we got into the sermon was this idea that a lot of us, what has happened is we've been disappointed with our faith walk a little bit, haven't we? If we're honest, uh, at least for me. When I was young, there were ways I thought that God was going to speak, and there was ways I thought God was going to act, and there were prayers I prayed that I thought God would answer, and it didn't happen. And slowly but surely, I think my heart became actually discouraged and disappointed. And what happens with that is I lost the expectation that I could actually see God. And so there's times, I'm telling you, I'm confessing, where I go to the Word and I open the Word, I, I read the Bible, and I have no expectation that God will actually speak to me in His Bible. And there's times where I pray and I have no expectation that God will answer, actually answer my prayer, like in a way I can understand. Or I come to church and I'm doing all these things in the back and I'm preaching and I have almost no expectation that God can actually encounter us here in this community. And if you're like me, it's just like, then what is our hope? Then what, what is the point? Can we really change? And if it's only in the presence of God, how do we get to God? That's the question. How do we see God? What does it mean to hear from God? What does it mean to encounter God so our lives can be transformed and the people around us can see it as well? And so my sermon today is for this Mike would let me preach it, is on the idea that we often miss God because we look for him in what I call the spectacular. But oftentimes God is actually in the mundane. I think we look for God in the magnificent. But God is often in the disappointing. And so I want to argue that we see God most clearly in the unspectacular, even in the disappointing. And that it's in those places of disillusionment 
that we see the Lord, that we can actually experience his presence for who he really actually is, and then change will come to our life. I'm going to invite you to bow your heads and pray with me for a second if you can. I really believe that the word of God is breathing, it's active. I actually believe that when God looks in this room, he sees individuals he wants to have an intimate relationship with. Like I, I genuinely, I would not be up here if I didn't believe that. He looks at you and he wants to speak to you in a way you would understand. And he wants you to trust him in a way that's tangible and it's real. And I just pray or ask you to join me in praying now for your own hearts and for the hearts of the people around you. Let's just pray. No matter what we're feeling, what distractions we brought into this place, that God would meet us and even now begin the process of change into more mature disciples of Christ. What doubts do you have? What lies is the enemy speaking to you in this moment? Confess them to the Lord. What are the things distracting you or weighing on your heart? So, God, we just give this service to you, Lord. I mean, God, I know how fallen and broken and inarticulate I am, Lord, how scatterbrained my mind is. Lord, it'll be a miracle if I get through this sermon. But I ask, God, that you don't speak uh, through me, but you speak also in spite of me, Lord. Everyone here who is coming and they're humbly coming before you, Lord, and they're asking to see the presence of the Holy One. I pray, God, that in your mercy and in your grace, you answer their prayers. That even today, Lord, even today, Father, they see you in a way they have never seen you before. Even today, they hear your voice with clarity they had never heard before. There's transformation in their lives. They look like your son, Jesus. So that the people around them, this community around us, would be transformed by the God inside of us, by your spirit leading us. So we pray this, God, with faith, little faith, but some faith that you would answer us and hear our cry. Through the power of the Spirit, in Christ's name, amen, amen. I want to read the passage again. It's from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
So the letter from Paul to the Corinthian church, starting in verse 20, he says, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made the foolish, made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greece, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. My plan is for this sermon to be very quick. At a long intro, I only have two points. And the first point is that we love the spectacular. We love the spectacular. And so once again, I'm arguing that in order to change, we have to have an encounter with the Lord. And oftentimes we miss the Lord. We don't encounter him. And I'm saying, I think it's because we see him, we believe we'll only see him in the spectacular. We're used to that. We love the spectacular. And so I have basically two, uh, uh, I guess, characteristics that describe what I mean when I say spectacular. And so the first one is an extraordinary, extraordinary situation. And the second one is it's an extraordinary people, right? So spectacular is defined by either an extraordinary situation and or with extraordinary people. And the first thing I thought of randomly was the Oscars. I don't know why. I thought of the Oscars. So I don't know if you know, but the Oscars is actually the most watched live television event in America every year. And I was thinking about, you know, the spectacle of the Oscars. Like, I even admit, I don't really like celebrities, but I, I like watching the Oscars. There's something about the glitz, right, and the, and the glamour, and the lights, and the banquets, always amazing. I can only imagine what the food is like, you know what I'm saying? And there's lights, and the carpet is rolled out, and it's just this, this beautiful presentation, and there's something about that we love, right? Something about the lights and the, the flash and the, and the pomp of it all. It's an extraordinary situation, extraordinary setting. But once again, it also has what? Extraordinary people. I mean, you think about the Oscar, that's like what the A-list celebrities. Anybody who's anybody in Hollywood is going to be at the Oscars, Right? And so those two things, you kind of see uh, these two characteristics form what we call an ex- a spectacular event. And I was thinking about why do we love the Oscars so much or stuff like the Oscars so much or the Grammys, whatever, big spectacles like that. I think part of it is because we kind of like imagine what we would be like in that situation, right? Anybody else like that? Like, I'll be real. I'm like, what? who would I sit next to? Like, who, who would I actually be friends with? You know what I'm saying? Like, what would I wear? Like, how, what car would I hop out of? And in some ways for us, it's like we, we equate being successful with this spectacle, with being spectacular. The Oscars is almost a pantheon of human success in America, right? It's like the apex of successful people. Like, once you're at the Oscars, you're like, I, I made it. And so for us, if you are anything of value or true value or worth for a lot of us, 
we equate it with having this spectacular event, situation, or, or people. So we do the same thing with our faith. For us, we say, right, if God is this magnificent, awesome, holy, amazing God, worthy of encountering, then he must be in a place like the Oscars. He must be in this extraordinary setting. Or he must be with extraordinary, talented people. A lot of us, we think that's where we'll meet God. And so that's why I picked these kind of two characteristics. I mean, Paul, I, I got it from him in verse uh, 22. <clears throat> as his app pulls back up. He says this. He says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. And so what he's saying here is, is the Jews and the Greeks at this time with Paul, they were all trying to figure out and answer the same question I'm asking today. They're all trying to figure out how do we get to God? How do we actually get to the presence of God? The Jews, the Greek, Paul, they were all arguing that together. And in verse 22, he says the Jews' answer is through signs and wonders. And the Greeks, through wisdom. So start with the Jews first, through signs and wonders. I mean, you could think about the times in the Bible, right, where Jesus was walking among the Pharisees, the religious leaders. And they were always asking him for signs, Right? And it's interesting, you know, I do a Bible study in my small group. Shout out to my small group. And um, like no cool name for our small group. Um, but it's fun. We're reading through the Gospels, and it's interesting to see, like, what, what things you notice when you read it again. And one thing I noticed when I was reading the Gospels is I started to feel a lot of sympathy for the Pharisees. It's like blasphemous. Right? We're so harsh with the Pharisees. But I started feeling sympathy for it. You know why? They question Christ a lot, right? But we don't realize that that was literally their job. Like they were religious leaders and their job was to weed out false prophets. Like there were people all the time at that time who were saying they were a Messiah or a prophet. And their job was to question and weed those people out. So that's what they were doing with Jesus to a degree. And so their sin wasn't that they were questioning what Jesus could do. Their sin was that they were questioning what God could do. Because for them, they thought the Messiah would come down from heaven. They thought the Messiah would be a a leader like David to conquer Rome. That he would be wise like Solomon. He'd be strong, right, like Samson. Like Elijah, he'd be able to call fire from heaven. They thought the Messiah would look like that. They thought God looks like that, that we find God in the miracles and the signs and the extravagance. The things we can't explain, the situations that are extraordinary. They didn't know that God is not always in the earthquake, right, or the wind, or the fire. Sometimes God is in a still, small voice. And they didn't realize that sometimes God comes like a humble baby in a dirty manger. And so for many of us, let's be honest, we're, this for me, I'm like the Pharisees. Like I pray that God will show me a sign 
all the time, right? If I want an answer, I'm like, God, clearly open some doors, clearly close some doors, send some old lady on the bus to give me some, like, words, right? Like, give me a miracle. Like, I went to Wheaton College, and I didn't want to go at first. I literally prayed, God, give me a sign. And the next day I found out, literally, that Wheaton was rated the best cafeteria food in the nation. And I was like, that's the only sign I need, Lord. You know me so well. Right. But, it, but in those days, like, I kind of took that like a sign. And if I don't have these extravagant answers to my prayers, you know my first thought is? God's an answer. God's not here. He's not responding to me on this one. I'm just going to do my own thing. I don't continue to look and seek and, and, and try to find where he's at. I just assume God's not there because God's in the miracles. He's in the extravagant. That's how the Jews are. That's, what it, that's how the Jews were thinking at this time. That's how many of us think now. In the same way he talked about the Greeks and wisdom. So a lot of Greek philosophy, I mean, wisdom was one of the greatest virtues you could have. And they actually thought that if you were wise, that you qualified to be a leader. If you had a unique degree of wisdom, that's the only thing that would qualify you to lead other people and for other people to follow you. And so in so many words, I mean, for the Greeks, to them, it wasn't just about the extraordinary miracles or situation. Is about the capabilities of the people, right? Extraordinary people. And so they looked, they literally looked and were trying to find who are the most gifted speakers, or who, who are the most talented, who are, who are the funniest, who are the wittiest. And those are the people they would elevate to, lead, to positions of leadership. And those are the people they said will get us to God. When we follow or, or we are a wise, talented, naturally gifted person. That's what the Greeks believed. And so there's something about Paul I want to tell you guys. This is one of those things, you know, we, we makes you a little bit snobby, so you have like certain things that bother you. And one thing that bothered me a little bit is when people talk about Paul, I heard this recently, and they're like, man, Paul was just, must have been the best speaker. Nah, dude. Like, nah. Like, Paul was a bad speaker. I don't know if y'all heard this before. Paul was not a good preacher. Like, he was not funny. He was not witty. He was not poetic. He didn't have good rhetoric. He wasn't articulate. He was kind of scatterbrained. Paul was not a good preacher. So now I look skeptical. Paul himself says that. In the next chapter, chapter 2. He talks about how he goes to the Corinthians church. He said, I was terrified. I was preaching with fear and trembling. I was scared. And he says, I, I didn't say anything that's really persuasive or really profound. He says it was bland himself. He said, my sermon was bland. It was boring. And that's what his critics say. In 2 in, uh, Corinthians chapter 10, they say the same thing. They said, man, Paul's kind of weak. That's what they say. He said, he's weak in person. And Paul, I mean, you know, I think the average height was like 5'7". I think Paul was probably like this tall. You know what I'm saying? 
I don't know why I imagine he was bald. I don't know if he was. Nothing wrong with being bald, Abe. I, just, I just imagine he was bald. Scholars think he had bad eyesight, right? He had a thorn, whatever that means in his flesh. He was like a little thorn. I don't know. Who knows? Like he was not an attractive dude. You see what I'm saying? And so if this dude came and planted a church right now, who would go? I'm gonna be real. I'm not going to that church. I'm trying to hear no bland sermons, you know what I'm saying? I got a switch and I could go play Smash instead. But but that's the thing for us, who do we look to? Who do we assume will take us to the presence of God? Oh, it's the most charismatic people. We think of right, Beth Moore, Francis Chan. Oh, it's the smartest people, Tim Keller, John Piper, right? All the spiritual people, or poetic C.S. Lewis. Henry Nowen. Those are the people we think will take us to God. And I want to argue, you know, I'm not going to like this, but I'm going to argue this. I'm going to be real with you. I actually think that the more naturally talented you are, the less likely, let me say it again, I actually think the less naturally, right, talented you are, the less likely God will use you to bring people to his presence. I think I read that in the scripture. I think I read that in the passage. What does Paul say in verse 20? He says, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe, the teachers, the experts of the law? Where is the debater of this age? Paul is saying, where are all your qualified people? Where are all your gifted people? Where are all your funniest, your smartest, your most articulate people? Where are they? Bring them so I could show you that there is no power in those things when it comes to the kingdom of God. Because God has chosen to use what we see as foolish to bring true wisdom and faith to all the people. Do you see what he's saying? That maybe it's actually the quiet person in your small group that will get you to God quicker than Tim Keller. Maybe it's an awkward dude in your small group, right, who will help you hear and see the voice of the Lord quicker than John Piper. Maybe God actually wants to use those we least expect so that his glory will be magnified that much greater. And so we love the spectacular. We love the spectacular. We love the spectacle. We love the pastors who can preach and bring a fire and entertain us and deep. God is like, yo, my kingdom is different than you guys. And you will not find me if you only look for the spectacular. If you only look for miracles. If you only expect I'm going to answer your prayers in the most bombastic way. If you only listen to those who have PhDs or who know how to doctor their sermon to sound nice and build up emotive feelings, you will not find me there. But instead, what I would suggest is that God loves the disappointing. Point two, God loves the disappointing. He loves to use situations and people that fall short 
of our expectations. Look at verse 21. It says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom. That's a confusing phrase, isn't it? For since in the wisdom of God. I was talking to Brian actually earlier about this. He's like, it would have been much easier if Paul had simply said, the world did not know God through wisdom, through, through human wisdom, that's what it's saying. It would have been a lot easier if Paul just said, the world did not know God through wisdom. He said, but for some reason, Paul thought it was important to add, in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. What's he saying? God planned in his wisdom to use the things we often are disappointed in to produce faith and change in our lives. That it was the wisdom. God intentionally, you see what I'm saying? He intentionally was like, I'm going to use the things that you never thought I would use. I'm going to take you down a path you never thought I would take you. I'm going to lead you to a place you never wanted to go. And that's where you're going to find me. And that's how you're going to get to me. In his wisdom, he purposely said, I'm going to cloud the the things that you're so naturally inclined to cling to, the spectacular, and it will hinder you from seeing me clearly. He designed it that way. It's bizarre. But it was an intention and a purpose of God. It's one of the hardest things for us to understand as Christians is that God isn't like us. Here's a quote I like. My professors used to say um, that God made man and woman in his image and then we return the favor. And I like that. We often think that God just like looks like, like he's a little bit bigger than us, right? a little bit taller, stronger, but he just kind of functions like we function. And one of the things, the first things he taught us as theology students was God is not like you. And God is not how you are. He says the way, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Anybody able to measure how high the heaven is above the earth? It's immeasurable. But as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's how much higher my ways and my thoughts are above your thoughts. I love a quote I read by Philip Yancey this week, it says, True faith does not so much attempt to manipulate God to do our will as it does to position us to do his will. And I like it. It's a simple reminder. It's an understanding that God's will and our will are often two different things. Not just the destination, but also the routes. And so you see in his design that God said, The way my glory will most shine in your life is actually in the times you're most disappointed, in the times you're most disillusioned, in the times you feel the loneliest, the times you feel isolated. Because then you'll see it's only me and my wisdom. This week we had a counselor, a professional counselor, the first one I ever seen in my life. She was at our office and she offered herself to the to the staff. Um, and I was a little hesitant to go, but I heard that she went to Wheaton and she was black. So I was like, well, got support for the culture, you know. And so 
I went uh, to talk to her, and I actually had no idea what we were going to talk about. I just kind of went there, and they, I don't know how they do it. They just ask the right question, and you start spilling your soul, you know what I'm saying? And so I'm just spilling her soul, my soul, to this poor lady, right? That's like one question. It went on and on and on. And I told them that for me, um, I felt like I was in a season that actually started at Wheaton College, I told her. And I shared a story how, you know, like I, I told you guys, I, I didn't really want to go to Wheaton at first. But part of what pushed me there was that uh, by my senior year of high school, I was so discouraged because I had not that many friends who were really, really like as jazzed up about Christ as I was. And so I kind of felt myself waning and not wanting to pursue him like I did when I was younger. And so I actually partly desired to be in a community of other Christians. You know what I'm saying? Like people who are fired up for God, especially dudes. You know a lot of dudes like that. And so I had this expectation. I didn't even know at the time, but looking back, that I would go to Wheaton College and I would experience God through the spectacular. Think about it. I mean, how many mature, smart, beautiful Christians in this one place, right? Talk about a place that has, it's an extraordinary situation. And some gift, I remember I was there day one, and I'm used to being like the leader of my small group. You know what I'm saying? Like I was like the one everyone came to. Everybody was the leader of the small group there. Extraordinary people. Some of them almost knew the Bible as well as me. You know what I'm saying? Almost. But for, like, the most talented, driven people in the most extraordinary, Christ-centered situation. And I went in there thinking, I am going to see God. And I was so excited. And fast forward about six months into my freshman year, and the truth is I remember I was laying on my bed and I was looking up at my ceiling and I had this thought. I was like, this is not fun. Like I feel completely discouraged and disappointed, even more so than when I first went. And I literally remember one night, like I was in my bed and I was looking up and I was praying to God and I prayed this prayer. I never prayed this prayer before in my life. I said, God, you know, if you want to take my life, I think I'm ready, actually. And I told her that I, I, throughout like that time, I think even to now, there's been these moments of such disillusionment. The people were great. They were intentional. They were smart. They were, some of them are here in this room. I love them. The professors were brilliant. The situation, chapel was pretty lit. Well, I didn't really go that often. But when I went, it was pretty nice. That great worship. But they were people. And they were flawed like me. And they had some of the same questions I had. And they had some of the same doubts I had. And I was just so disappointed. And I think, honestly, for most of my time in Wien, I didn't see God. Because it wasn't like what I thought it would be like. And recently in the season, it's been similar for me. There's been things that has conf- made me confront again the question, 
Are you seeing God? And I had to be honest with you guys. I've been in a season once again of disappointment, of discouragement, of disillusionment. There's been things that I've said, man, this is not how I thought this was going to go. This is not the way I thought you were leading our church. It's not the way I thought you were leading me. And I was confessing all this <laughs> to the counselor. And I told her, I said, but you know what? I think God has given me hope. And this is the hope I want to give you guys today. It's not built on much, but it's just this idea that the more and more I get to know this God, the more and more I realize that he's actually okay with us being disillusioned and disappointed. And there's actually times where he wants us to be frustrated. And he will allow us to be angry. And he will allow us to question and second guess. And he will allow all our idols to come tumbling down. And he will allow us to feel isolated. And he will allow us to, to feel shame. And he will allow us to question those that we trusted as leaders. And he will allow us to question the church we've committed our lives to. And he will allow us to question all the things that we've built our faith on to show us that he's so much greater than we actually have ever imagined. That he's so much more impressive than we actually think. That through the path of disappointment, when we actually see who the Lord is, he's so much better than we ever imagined he would be like. But he knows he has to break down our idols and break down our expectations of church and faith and Christianity to actually get us to him. He has to do it. Otherwise, we will forever cling to our misconception of what things should be like here. And so I want to encourage you guys to remember that God loves using the disappointing. And he loves using us. Like, we're the prodigal sons, right? Like, we, like how, we, we run away from God all the time, don't we? And we pursue the things that we want, the pleasures we have, the desires of our heart. And we're the older brother, too, in the story. And we want to use God for the things he gives us. In some ways, we're kind of disappointing. Yet God showed his love that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Paul says they want signs, they want wisdom, but all I preach is Christ crucified. Christ, the greatest symbol of the Messiah, of the Holy One. And the cross, at the time, the greatest symbol of death and shame and dishonor. The one with the most impressive resume dies in the most disappointing way so that we can go from disappointment to children of God. And we can understand that God's presence often takes the route of the unexpected. And though today we might be discouraged, 
tomorrow we can see him for who he truly is. So I want to end simply saying this. My prayer is that if you forget everything I say today, that you believe and trust that even in the moments where all your idols have come tumbling down and you're lost and you're confused, you can see the Lord. You could hear from him. And in his presence, you will change. If you're comfortable, I'm going to invite you to pray and bow your heads with me in this moment. I love in verse 24 how Paul says, those who are called, no matter who they are, that Christ will be a power and a hope and a wisdom to them. And I want to reassure you guys, if you are in Christ here today, you are called by him. And so you can be assured that he wants to be with you and desires for you to see him. And he will pursue you even when you don't. You were called by God. No matter what you've done, no matter what you did, even if you're disappointed in yourself, that God, because of Christ, will never again be disappointed in you. I want to say if you're here today and any of this resonated where you're like, if I'm honest with myself, uh, this Christian life is not what I thought it would be. Like when I read the Bible, it doesn't really do much. When I pray, I don't really have faith. I come to church out of habit, but honestly, I don't expect to really see God. I'm like waiting for heaven, Loki. If you're honest and you're like, honestly, I'm not impressed by this church. I'm not impressed by you. I'm not impressed by the worship. I'm disappointed in the leaders. If you're in this place, I want to say, praise God. Because maybe now you will understand that the point was never for you to be impressive, never for us to be impressive, never for us to be perfect, but to get you to the one who is. So now just pray and just talk with the Lord. Maybe it's been a long time. Just talk. If you have nothing else to say, just confess what you're feeling as true as it is. If you don't believe, say you don't believe. And just begin to speak with him. And see if even now he will speak back. And the spirit of God inside of you would come alive and guide you. Just begin to speak to the Lord. And just pray to God. You guys know me. I have no chill. Uh, I want to encourage you to pray with the people around you. I mean, what's the point of coming to church if we don't use this community to get to the Lord together? And so even if you're not comfortable, perhaps I will encourage you to just reach out. If there's somebody next to you, somebody around you, I say pray together. 
and pray out loud in faith. Whatever it is that God's putting out, just pray it. Uh, maybe grab them. Maybe you can, if they're comfortable, you could hold hands. You can put your hands on their shoulder. Let's just pray as a church community. Now, make sure no one here is not praying with somebody, at least one person. If God is calling you to pray alone, you are free to do that. Um, but otherwise, I would encourage us. Let's pray together to the Lord. Feel free to introduce yourself if you have to do that. You can share what's on your heart. Have them pray for you. Just pray out loud in faith. Let me close this in prayer.